Tiger, well, welcome to the show, man. I uh, I really appreciate it. I think it's 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 like what I call a hot start. We're just going to hot start this thing and, and roll Love right it. into it. Uh, man, I've been following you guys for a long time. So the way that I've kind of got turned on to your show was not through Rogan, actually, uh, which when you guys were on the show, I was super uh, excited to see you guys specifically on Rogan. Because I, and I can't remember. I, I think anybody that kind of dabbles, that likes to 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 kind of watch, we'll say less partisan media, uh, is probably run across you guys. And when and I'm t- referring to Crystal and Sagar, obviously. Uh, but then you, you being the conservative side of the voice, the or the majority of the time, what I like to call the logical center. Actually, now, um, I I I love the way that you frame up information. That I I I think last week or two weeks ago, whenever I reached out, uh, I, I, I can really say I can appreciate it when people take the military industrial complex and when they hold them to task. I, I really appreciate that. So welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much for joining me on Free Range American. We got a few things I, I, that I absolutely want to talk about, but my first question out of the gate is, uh, you you said something on a show a while back and you said the reason I got into this was because of the Iraq war. And mm-hmm. is that just journalism in general? Is that is that what you're referring to? It's actually more politics, man. And and really? thank you for the kind words, like all of that being said. Yeah. So I grew up in this place in College Station, Texas, which mm-hmm. is a really interesting, like unique place because it's literally where the library is for George H.W. Bush. So like if there and W was our governor and so right. it's like if you were going to find a place where it was basically heresy to say like no this is wrong like this would be it I've always been like naturally rebellious and uh and all of that and so around 2003 um you know the war drum was starting to beat and look I was young I, I'm talking about like I was like 12 or 13 years old and I would just be you know I'd be the annoying kid in class and I'd raise my class my hand and be like yeah but like does he have a nuclear weapons, right? And they'd be <laughs> right. like, well, it's in the new, right? It's in the New right. York Times. And uh, I, I, it just stuck with me so hard because, you know, what, six months into the war, September 2004, it's all bullshit and we all right. know it. And it was one of these things, it, it's just got memory hold um, in the discourse. And it made me so angry because I had neighbors in College Station who were actually deployed. Right. Um, I knew people who had signed up for the military after 9-11 and wanted... Um, to go and avenge what happened. I mean, obviously it's a noble and important thing. And I just got angrier and angrier that we had been led into this war um, under complete lies. And just that was a very radicalizing experience personally. And that's why I got involved in politics. And then the 2004 election happened. And again, I was just a teenager and I was like raging against the machine. And you see, I mean, he won, like Bush yeah, won. And I was like, I, I was just like, I was like, what do you have to do in this country? You know, and and, and I think that that's really where I became obsessed uh, with the foreign policy and with the military. 
And I heard stories actually from people who had gone. And this is around when I was like 18 Mm -hmm. or so. People who were my age or a little bit older who came back and they were like, man, like my officers didn't know what we were doing. And like my friends got killed or like my friends ended up in a bad situation. And again, it it just made me, it made me so angry because I, and I'm not blaming the officers. I think they were, sure. you know, if you're a national guardsman and you get called up to go and become like, um, a, you become a guy who's trying to intermediate Shia Sunni relations <laughs> in the middle of Fallujah. I mean, yeah. that's not, I, mean, I don't blame you. Like that's not on you. That's on the, on your leaders that sent you there. And I just, it really made me, and it put at home the magnitude of the failures of conventional wisdom. And nobody here pays a price. You know, like I have walked past Scooter Libby and Paul Wolfowitz and Donald Rumsfeld. I ran into him on the street once. And these guys are living large and they're making a lot of money. And I'm like, you don't know what you did. Like, do you know what you did? Just so many people. It just, even today, it just burns white hot um, whenever I see that. So that really is like what forged me in politics. Well, it's interesting. And that's kind of one of the things I, I wanted to, to move move with you in this conversation, which is why is it in, in, in obviously, this is a very complex uh, question. Mm-hmm. Why is it that our leadership can never pay the price for poor decision making? And sometimes we'll say corrupt and incompetent decision making, because as a guy that runs a company, uh, if somebody makes a, a a grossly incompetent mistake, they're terminated, they're fired, right? Yeah. So is, is there a reason, do you think, be, that outside of uh, there's just a kind of a, a lack of coherent understanding as to what what actually defines competence? Or do you think it's deeper than that? So it's a really interesting question. And look, nobody makes it here because they're dumb. Mm-hmm. Anybody who makes it to the top is very smart. And one of the things that you realize, you mentioned running a company. You right. can't fire everybody though, can you, Evan? And so that that's the question. Right. So if everybody becomes complicit within a decision mm, or right. more importantly, you control the pipeline through which everybody becomes a member of your company, right. then what are you going to do? I mean, you, you are you going to go against the grain of not just your deputy, but your deputy's deputy and your deputy's deputy deputy. And one of the things that the chief ideologues behind the war in Iraq and, and the current in terms of the permanent occupation of Afghanistan have been very adept at is that they not only were the ones who pushed forward something very much on the edge, they made everybody complicit. The CIA, the State Department, Colin Powell famously. Mm -hmm. Like they basically put blood and dirt on everybody's hands so that when, if the time does come for, let's say, let's hold someone to account, there's too many people at that point. And there's too many people bought into a system. And then what's even worse is that that is a disincentive for people speaking out. Because if you speak out, then you're kicked out of kind of the complex. Right. As in, for example, like if you, if people need to remember what 2003 was like, if you yeah. were here in Washington and you spoke out against the Iraq war, ostracized. I've actually yes. spoken to people who that happened to early in the war. They couldn't, nobody in the Bush administration would talk to them. Their access was cut completely. That's, that's if what you do is, and I think about a lot, is you construct a system in which it is in, it is very difficult to go against the grain mm-hmm. um, and the rewards you know everybody's like everybody likes to think they would speak out and the truth is like you probably wouldn't and it's not even necessarily that I blame you it's like you need a job you need health insurance you got to pay for your kids thing and you sit there 
And maybe you have doubts, but you don't say anything. And then the president is like, hey, man, I need you to go out and take point on this. And you do it. And then you leave office and now it's on you. So you have to defend it. It's a very vicious cycle, but that's largely, I, I want to explain just like how complex it becomes whenever an entire, it's, an, it's a systemic indictment is really what we're talking about. Yeah, and and from a guy that was obviously participating in the war, so I, I yeah. you know, I, I was part of the invasion of Iraq, and the lead up to Iraq as as a guy from the in the military, uh, what we were seeing and what we were hearing was there's weapons of mass destruction. These people are supporting terrorists. It, it's a wide variety of information that we were ultimately going to pursue and then end uh, in that pursuit. Uh, there was a counter narrative out there. There was. Mm-hmm. Uh, that counter narrative never really uh, was was kind of mined and then pushed out into the public. And I think journalism, just in general, during that time, I don't think that there was an active pursuit of truth. Yes. And I don't think that, uh, and that that leads me into such a fucking complex piece of information here, which is, <laughs> as a guy that was on the ground participating in the war, I was committed to violence and committed to dying. For mm-hmm. in the in the act of war, for we'll call it uh, you know patriating a group of people that were under the thumb of a dictator, and that dictator was uh, supporting international terrorist organizations. And they were building weapons of mass destruction that were that were ultimately going to come back to the United States. So, from my perspective, as a guy in two thousand three, and I'm taking you back to my my yeah. my my frame of mind, was. I'm ready to die for this because this is what we need to do. And and participating in the war itself was something that I was very proud of uh, in in 2003. Uh, There was a counter narrative, believe it or not. There was a counter narrative. And I I got Mm -hmm. arguments and debates with people uh, in 2004, 2005, especially across uh, the United States. If I'd be at cocktail parties and people would be coming at me, like, I can't believe you'd participate in this. I'm like, what are you talking about? The guy's, you know, he's a... Uh, he's Saddam Hussein was a bad guy, right? There's no yeah. doubt about that. Now it took me years, and I was I had four and a half years on the ground in Iraq, like my <sighs> four and a half years of participating both as a military guy and in the CIA. Mm-hmm. I left, so I opened that country up in 2003, and I was in every major city, and I participated in we'll call it uh, warfare in every major city in Iraq. And I left on the sofa. So wow. a month after sofa yeah. is when I yeah. left the country. I had four and a half years on the ground there. By the time that I left, I was so jaded as to mm-hmm. what we were doing and what I was participating in. Because from my perspective, we were in a... And this is just Evan, right? I'm, I'm not a... a I'm not the brightest bulb in the in the in the set here, but from the time that I left, what it what it felt to me like I was participating in the transference of wealth from the American taxpayer to the military industrial complex, and then what it felt like to me was there was going to be a generation of transferring of wealth, and that's not me. What, what I'm saying to that is I wasn't reading a lot of Noam Chomsky at the time, right? This was me participating in the war yeah. and I could feel it. I would go to places and I would have fields of these huge generators that were like a half a million dollars a piece. And 
I remember having this like really clear and concise click. Uh, I was down in a, a, a city called Basra, Iraq, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. it was right on the this river called There's a lot of oil fields there, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And uh, there was a field of generators that were roughly a half a million dollars a piece, a field of them, and they were just left. We completed the build on a base. Uh, two weeks later, we were completing the build and we were also uh, decommissioning it at the same time because of the way that the funding was overlapping and there wasn't a way to actually take away the funding without completing the build. And then you would have to go straight into uh, deconstruction, which was basically the removal of all the the sensitive information and then you'd destroy what you had built. Those were happening at the same time. We were building and destroying at the same time. And I couldn't believe my eyes. And I couldn't believe... I, I, I sat there and I thought to myself, am I the only person that sees this so fucked up? That, <laughs> <laughs> and I felt like I was. I felt like I was the only no. person looking around at, at going, like, do you guys not see how messed up this is? Like we're we're bringing in contractors and completing things and then the next crew the next day is destroying it. Like, do you guys not see what's going on? Um, but the, the, there is no question to that other than, man, I had four and a half years to make this determination. I, I wish I would listen to myself a little bit sooner. From the outsider's perspective, what, and, and really the question I want to ask is, do you think that was solely driven on, on, on ideology? Do you think it's a combination of kind of ideology and profit? Do you think that those two things were balanced well? And do you think maybe those guys like Cheney really did just, they they believed in what they were doing so much that they were willing to, you do. It's a great question, Evan, because what you identified there was, it took me a long time too. I think it takes everybody a long time in order to let these realities seep in. And this is where propaganda comes into Mm -hmm. play, where many people have no idea what you're just talking about. They have no idea about the immense amount of waste. I mean, I'll tell a story in a bit about how I was truly radicalized on Afghanistan. And this is what happened to, I think, the entire country, which is that Again, let's put ourselves back in the minds of 2003, mm-hmm. where we are this great nation, post-peace dividend. We won the Gulf War. Mm-hmm. We won the Cold War. I mean, nobody can hold, uh, nobody can hold like anything to our, our military. And living in that decade of that massive growth, the GDP of the 1990s, where our biggest problem was that Bill Clinton got a blowjob, and then 9-11 comes and it hits us in the face, and we're ready to respond with ferocity. Mm -hmm. This is where, and some of the more conspiratorial-minded folks get mad at me, I don't believe in direct conspiracy. Like, I don't believe that Dick Cheney, the former CEO of Halliburton, invaded Iraq in order to enrich Halliburton. Mm. Here's how I think it happened. I think he was a true ideologue. And there's a book um, that I recommend people uh, read called Rise of the Vulcans, which is detailing exactly what I'm talking about. A heavily um, committed group of neoconservatives, truly radicalized by Ronald Reagan, um, and right. I'm not blaming Reagan. What his response was was fine in 1980. That doesn't mean right. it carries over to 2001. But we're true believers in the spreading of democracy, in the United States must be the world's policeman. And it was a hubris 
which I believe comes from a deep lack of familiarity with the horrors of war. And it's something, I mean, I don't have to explain it to you. Uh, I've never personally experienced it. I like to think that I have enough respect for what it means to send people into war that I don't think we just had as a nation Mm -hmm. for so long. I mean, the worst thing that happened previously to that was Black Hawk Down, right? Right. And, And even that was like a huge thing. And, and, we even after 2003 i think it took 4 or 5 years to set into the public consciousness around the time of the surge mm-hmm. we were losing like 120 guys a day and you're like hey yeah. you know i know that guy or like mm-hmm. hey like my cousin came back and he doesn't have a leg anymore or like hey like my you know my friend's friend came back and like he's addicted to pills like it took a long time to seep into the public consciousness so a, this is a long way of saying is i think they were committed to it ideologically and that there were a variety of factors at play as to why. What I will not forgive is by 2005, we knew it was up. And right. that's when the lies truly, I mean, that was when the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. That mm-hmm. was what insurgency, what are you talking about? That was everything we did was right. I mean, this is Biden. This is, uh, this was Bush. This was Everybody who is involved in the foreign policy consensus refused to discuss the insurgency or listen to people like mm-hmm. you who were on the ground and coming back and being like, yo, we're going outside the wire. And at night, this place is going to shit. I mean, thousands of Iraqis dying every mm-hmm. month and all that. I can't forgive that. I, I can't forgive the people after that point. And this is where I, you know, it really just makes me, it makes me so upset just thinking about how many lives were lost um, and for what? And, and you look at Iraq even right now, which is modestly, moderately more successful than right. Afghanistan. And you say, come on, what was it all for? You know? I think that's what, uh, you know, as a guy that participated in both Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, because I, I went to Afghanistan in 2009, right after uh, SOFA. So mm-hmm. to, uh, what I tell people is like, I, listen, I, I'm, I was, and I'm recovering, I would say like, Uber zealot, right? <laughs> Just like <laughs> I was ready to go, and for you know a decade plus, I was ready to go because I believed yeah. in what we were doing. I think there's uh, what I what I've kind of turned the corner with, and what I saw in Iraq specifically was exactly right. I saw what I felt on the ground, and the people that I had talked to, whether they were Iraqis or non-Iraqis or whomever was on the ground, like participating in this actual event, but the majority of the civilians, all Mm -hmm. of us came to the same conclusion, by the way. The civilians wanted the same things that most civilians here in the United States wanted. They wanted the ability to feed their families, educate, and live relatively free lives. That's what they wanted. They, They didn't want to participate in radical religion or radical ideology. They just wanted to kind of go about their days and live relatively free, (laughs) <laughs> and participate in kind of just evolution, right? Yeah. And uh, 2005, and I remember specifically in 2003 when they said a debathification was required. Uh, and I go back to this and I remember the day I was in the team room and I was watching the news. That's actually how we we found out and we were working directly with the CIA and special forces, the debathification yeah. uh, was... We all took a deep breath and we were like, these guys are trying to create an insurgency. This is the dumbest fucking thing they could ever do. (laughs) Like send everybody home that has guns and say, you're not going to get paid. And oh, by the way, you're now criminals. Like 
what the fuck are you guys doing? We all sat there in the team room watching the news going, oh my God, what is going on? Because we knew all these guys on the streets. I was in Najaf at the time. So on Najaf yeah. was this, uh, you know, it's a, it's a huge population base. It's actually uh, uh, more of the Iranian religious uh, uh, center because yeah. of the Grand Mosque of Imam. And um, so we, were, we, had, we had just left a riot where the cleric we were trying to install there was actually uh, murdered by a guy named Muftada al-Sadr. And you'll yes, remember that name. I do. I remember. Well, so, yeah, yeah. so I, so believe it or not, this is like fucking history, like Evan, <laughs> Evan the coffee guy. So I participated <laughs> in the first American meeting with Muftada al-Sadr back in 2003. So wow. my ODA yeah. facilitated the first meeting with that scumbag. And we left there going, this guy is going to be a problem. He's not, he's never going to work for us. Mm -hmm. We're never going to be able to turn this guy to work for us. He is going to be a problem. And you know what the agency came back and said? What? You guys don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> no shit. That's what they, that's what they came they back did. and said. Because the guy Just... on the ground that was running that guy was a career academic that studied like Middle Eastern policy from George Washington. He was an analyst and he'd never actually run an asset to that level, but they were so shorthanded and they were trying to, you know, do too much too fast. And so you had, you know, the agency in the State Department trying to work with Mukhtar al-Sadr. You had, you know, SF guys, you know, because I was a Green Beret at the time and we we're like, we, this guy needs to probably end his existence here on this planet just relatively soon or we got to figure this out. Uh, and we we were we sat there in the team room and we were laughing at the agency going, you guys are smoking, literally smoking crack. If you think this guy is going to be flipped and you're going to be able to work with him. He is completely run by Iran. I mean, we're knuckle draggers, right? We, we know yeah. nothing. Um, but the first two years, the point of this conversation is not to tell you how cool I am. It's the first two years of that, we couldn't believe what they were doing because it felt like everything they were doing was scripted to create an insurgency. Yes. <laughs> That's, and it, it, you couldn't have written a better playbook to create an insurgency. And it took me another few years to go, did they try actively to create this so they could just spend more of the taxpayer dollars? I'm not sure. I know. I, I know. You know, I remember reading um, when I was in high school, Tom Ricks, this is another book that really, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of the red pill on Iraq, it was called Fiasco. And it's exactly what you're talking yeah. about, which is that it's like, look, the invasion of Iraq was probably always going to be bad with 150,000 <laughs> yes. troops, but yeah. it didn't have to turn into an outright fiasco and to a sectarian civil right. war. And that's exactly what you discussed. Debathification is right up there. Um, the empowering of, you know, Maliki, like a little bit later on, was definitely right. up there. And then, you know, the Obama administration, kind of the way that they handled it, all of that. There was just so, it was like misstep after misstep after misstep after misstep. And that's what I mean, really, when I talk about the forgiveness, which is, I guess, like, I, I think, still think the invasion is unforgivable. But I think right. that the lack of, uh, the lack of steps taken to seriously assess, wait, what is going on right now? And the lack of honesty that right. was allowed in senior level meetings with the president by Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney, that is what created what you're talking about. That, that is what created, you know, I mean, literal like 
sectarian genocide uh, on side. <laughs> At some point, yeah. U.S. troops are like sitting there building up walls between different neighborhoods to stop people from killing each other by like drilling knives into their skulls. Yeah, and during screws or what. And this is this is what I'm, what I'm talking about though, which is I don't think Americans ever really knew what was going on. They knew it was a shit show. They were like, yes. oh, this is a shit show. They don't know like the series of steps that were made by our idiot leadership class that led to an outbreak of a civil war right. and like the empowerment of Al-Qaeda and Iran. I mean, you want to talk about what made Iran powerful. It was us. We I paid know. them. In I know. And then they, they paid, we paid them to kill our soldiers <laughs> yeah. with their, you know, sophisticated IEDs. And mm-hmm. it's just like, I go down like, yeah, I, I'm really living living in memory lane here because I don't get to talk about this as much, but this is why I guess they get so angry at the establishment and at the media in particular too, because they just, they look at this stuff as a game. Like if, if uh, invading Iraq had been some, like for example, around Trump, like whenever Trump would talk about Iraq in Afghanistan, you'd find out, you'd find some, you know, grubby guy who had his hands deep into not only defense contracts, but had played a central role in invading the countries in the first place to give a quote in the New York Times about why Trump was wrong. And I'm like, are you people out of your mind? Like, look, Trump can be bad. But this guy is so much worse. (laughs) Like, you know, and I'm like, let's just realize we're the true villains in our society. And they're rich. They're filthy rich, man. They live right here. Yeah. Well, that that's the thing that 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 I I, I've talked about a lot on the podcast, which and and you said it. You said the idiot leadership class. And I guess the thing that that I want to transition to now is when we when we look at these mistakes and they're blatant mistakes in modern history that you and I have both lived through and you know the two of us together we're, we're not building rocket ships right we're yes, we're just yeah. like a guy that runs a coffee company and I'm I'm not devaluing what you do I'm just saying like no please we're not, yeah. we're not, we're not, we're not solving YouTube. cancer yeah. like we're we're <laughs> we're doing what we do for for a combination yeah. of reasons but we can see that and. I can see right through it in the idiot leadership class, which this is not going to turn into, you know, a Hannity rant. What I'm saying is, is like, why are people willing to forfeit their liberty to a group of imbeciles that have continued to let us down time after time after time in modern history? We felt these things. We understand them. Now, is it is it complacency in the media? Is it a, you know, is it a cabal, a conspiracy cabal where the Illuminati is? Like, <laughs> I don't know, man. Like, give me your, give me your uh, two cents on that. It's very difficult because, again, I have to turn to systems. Our systems sure. are designed in very bad, in very bad ways. Right. And so on three different levels. So first of mm-hmm. all, on our partisan production process, which is that right now with our current system, you can see actually in the last 15 years that the greatest threat to an incumbent member of Congress is from an intra-party uh, challenge, as in not being too ideologically right or not being too ideologically left enough, which right. causes people to drift further away from a center and grab onto and make sure that they go scorched earth against each other's policies. That's number one in terms Mm -hmm. of Congress. Number two is elite production. Um, And I'll give you an example because this is honestly, frankly, I think even more important, which is that what produces those at the CIA asshole that you had Mm -hmm. to deal with who thought he knew better than you? Well, it's the educational pipeline. 
And so I had the you know great uh, privilege actually of you you hear how I talk. I'm pretty confrontational. I'm pretty anti conventional wisdom. And so I actually got my master's from Georgetown in security studies, where I was going at it daily, basically in my classes with members of the military. I mean, these right. guys were they're all officers, yeah, and they're all doing this class, mm-hmm. these this program because they want to be on the general track, right? And I think you know the type. Who yep. you know doing the Georgetown thing? Very bought into um, the military can do no wrong. We actually won the Iraq War. You don't know what you're talking about, right? Um, you you know what are you civilian? They would try and pull that stuff, and I, and I was like, that's fine. You know, I'm not. Ta- we're not arguing battlefield tactics like we're arguing strategy. Mm-hmm. But really, what it was is I got to see very firsthand what creates our future State Department foreign officers, what mm-hmm. creates our next generation of bureaucrats, and they are imbibed with a couple of things. And just, first of all, is the sheer narcissism of the idea that like, it's difficult to describe, but it's very neoconservative in its idea of like, we can import democracy to Afghanistan. Or like, you know, for example, I recently saw this story, which I think just encapsulates it, which is General Miley. He's the chairman Mm -hmm. of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I mean, he broke down in tears in the situation (laughs) room because he was like, we can't leave Afghanistan because of women's rights in the Do you country. think he really did that? I, 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 read, I do. I, I believe that. It. You think so? I believe it. Okay. Right. I believe it 100%. I, I read that and I was like, this is total bullshit. There's because, no way. No, because I know how these people think. I, right. I really do. Like I sat in the room with the future General Miley's and the future mm-hmm. um, Foreign Service officers and the future Colin Powell's and State Department mm-hmm. people. And I would argue very basic precepts with them. And another thing that made people very uncomfortable is I'll take H.R. McMaster, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, H.R. McMaster is the definition of the, you know, uh, scholar general. Like he got his PhD and all of this. And he was held up by a lot of people in Washington, some people who I used to respect. And then he became the national security advisor. And I know this for a fact. In the Situation Room, he pitched Trump on putting 70,000 more troops in Afghanistan in the year 2017. And, and I said in one of my classes, um, this is kind of before that and all that, and I was like, I believe that those types of people should be fired and should be shunned, you know? Yeah. Like they should be shunned for going against the democratic will. All of this is a long way of saying is that the biggest problem we have is we have an elite class that believes that they know better than you or I and the average citizen. Mm-hmm. When the truth is, it's the exact opposite. We have elected three separate presidents in a row to get out of Afghanistan and we stop. We just won't do it. And the reason why is because there's there's this paternalistic instinct within the minds of especially foreign policy elite saying they don't know what's going to happen. You know, this could lead to this or this could lead to that. I actually think people know much better. And it's a very anti-democratic mindset um, that a lot of people have in D.C., especially in the foreign policy realm of these sheep will go along and more. And look, unfortunately, that is true for some things and especially in some limited capacities. But Americans wise up and uh, they almost always come to the proper answer. And th- but they won't listen. And I think that's the biggest problem we have. Well, I, I completely agree, by the way. Uh, and that that's, I mean, I love having people on the show that completely agree with me because it's great. Um, I, no, that's what, this is what I, because you're, you're much better articulating some of these things than I am, where I'm trying to figure out how do we, we, we hold people accountable. And when I say that, it's like the, 
when I, when I see mainstream media and I don't believe they're actually asking the right questions or holding people accountable and doing their job, I really don't. Because yeah. when we look at, we'll say the the minimum success criteria for Afghanistan, there's not a person. I think you could go to Washington and you could look, go to every one of the State Department officials and CIA guys and say, what are what are the minimum success criteria for what you're trying to accomplish or America as a country? Our minimum success criteria for our strategic goals in Afghanistan. And you're going to have... 20 different answers, 30 yeah, different answers. Right. You're going to have people that don't understand. You're going to be like, what are you talking about? We're there. Well, that's that's yeah. the success criteria. Right. Uh, to me, that's a fundamental problem and a lack of leadership and coherent leadership from the top. And holding your leadership accountable, whether it's through voting or whether it's through uh, you know legal action, whatever that might be, that's, a, that's kind of the, the whole thing of being an active participant or a citizen of the United States. But I don't, the thing that I want to ask you is why is the media so complacent in this? What, mm -hmm. what is, what's going on to the point where are they all in this together? Are they just so, um, kind of like blithely incoherent and self-absorbed that they can't understand what's going on from your assessment? Why, why is the mainstream media so complacent yeah. when it comes to these things? It's because this is, again, goes to the systemic production of like, I was a White House correspondent, so I can actually mm -hmm. ask, the, I can answer this pretty authoritatively, which is that the way to be a White House correspondent is you write these bullshit political articles every single day by sitting on the campaign bus. You hope that the person that you're covering wins. And by bullshit, I mean the stuff like so-and-so responded to this attack or like so-and-so trashes so-and-so, like truly like low IQ stuff, which is just very much like, these are people who are like, I like politics, but like they don't actually like policy. So they don't actually mm. know anything about the policy itself. And so what you get used to is you get used to asking and generating news and questions, which are very much more geared towards what your peers will like, number one, and number two, which is how to get ratings or clicks. And look, it's not sexy um, to ask about Afghanistan or right. Iraq or any of these things. And they actually, here's the other problem. It requires knowledge. Um, mm. which is that I would see this all the time whenever it came to North Korea. People were like, oh, I mean, the president, why is President Trump meeting with dictator Kim Jong-un? I'm like, do you know anything about our 20-year history of dealing with the Kim regime and nuclear weapons? No, you don't know anything. Like, you don't right. know, you don't even know when North Korea, like, got a nuke. Same thing with Putin or right. Crimea and Ukraine. Everything becomes hyper-politicized mm -hmm. in the Washington context. And the problem is, is very, very, very few people in the press are ever incentivized to ask or think about questions in a different context. And so the problem is two things. The peers among them want, like they all understand from the oldest ones to the youngest, that the youngest ones want to become the oldest ones, right? Like they want to get on TV. The right. easiest way to get on TV um, is when you're young is to ask like a provocative question and get into a fight with Sarah Sanders about the Mueller report. Mm -hmm. So you're just responding to incentives. And then people lean into those incentives because they like to make money. And also being on TV is pretty fun. Like people recognize you and all of that. And so all of what I'm describing is a system of incentives from the top and the bottom in which it encourages people to ask very vacuous questions and not know very much about what they're talking about. And that leads to this situation that we have right now, where you have like the total gamification of the press, 
where everything that you ask in the briefing room or in an interview with the president is geared towards making headlines, not just today, but right now, getting retweets on Twitter. And so what they're doing is they're performing for each other, but they're Mm. not performing for you. And that's actually the one of the worst things is that we used to have a system where like the Kansas City star would have Mm. a Washington correspondent. And that person would cover Missouri-related news. Mm -hmm. Or I'm from Texas. Like we would have the Austin, uh, I forget what the Austin paper is, whatever, uh, Austin American Statesman or the Dallas Morning News or any of those. They would have Washington correspondents and they would focus on the congressman, on the issues that would actually affect Texas. And they may even cover the White House and ask a question like that. But with the concentration of all media in New York, D.C., and L.A., and San Francisco, you basically have it so that people all live in the single area. They only know one another. They have no real connection to the outside, nor do they want one because that's not where they make their money. And they're not incentivized at all to ask the questions that you and I are talking about right here. I I could count on maybe one hand the number of people I know who cover the White House who've even been to Afghanistan or Iraq or who used to cover the Pentagon. They're mm-hmm. almost always the same cut of political reporters who know actually nothing about policy. And it's a huge problem. And it it, it, it appears to me that, it, it, to your point, it's getting worse. Like it, it's picking it up velocity. Worse. Yeah. And we're, we're at a race to the bottom, specifically related to mainstream media and information related to mainstream media. And then when you get into independent media... Now you have a mixed bag, right? So, uh, wow, right? Like, obviously, you're on YouTube. You understand yeah. uh, kind of the mixed bag. You've got the flat earther, flat earther <laughs> crowd on one side, right? And then you have fairly educated people, and then you have like the people in the middle that sound semi coherent, but they might be schizophrenic too. I'm not sure, mm-hmm. but wow, is so chopping through the information to really get something that doesn't just validate your worldview, but might be kind of a, a look at both sides, uh, which leads me to my next piece, which is like, how did you, you and kind of, and and I've heard it before on the show, but I think it'd be interesting for people to kind of dive into it. How how did you make that transition from what you were doing into what you're doing now? Uh, and, and why, like what, what was the, what was your off ramp, man? I hated the system. I hated being a White House correspondent. I hated being stuck in the daily news cycle. And I thought that enough people craved what I craved, which was something different. And so I had the opportunity with Crystal to kind of redesign like the whole show. We kind of start off from the beginning. And both of us had a very same, similar shared critique of the American establishment. And it caught on and it caught on enough that nobody could really say anything, right? Like it it caught on to the point where it became so successful that it became very clear that there were millions of people who wanted to listen. And I think it's important for people to know nobody in their right mind in DC media told me that I should do what I did. Everybody (laughs) said, don't do it, man. They're Mm -hmm. like, what are you doing over there? Like, you think anybody cares what you have to think? Or they're like, I I don't know, YouTube, like who's on, who's even on you? It's a narcissism, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's crazy because we live in a town where getting on CNN for three, I'll give you an example. Like Tucker Carlson is my old boss. I do a show. He's the only cable news show that I will do. Right. Um, I do like three minutes on Tucker mm-hmm. and more people around town were like, oh my God, I saw what you had to say. Like to them, cable 
is the only medium that matters, mm. like CNN, MSNBC, Fox. Right. Whereas I think for most people, especially people my age, they don't watch cable. And right. cable is terrible. I hate doing it. I'm probably, yeah. frankly, going to get to a point where I just refuse to do it, period, right. because I hate it. Like, I hate mm. doing it. It's very low IQ. It's not a way in order to impart smart information or nuanced pieces of information to people, which is what I believe is sorely lacking for the average citizen. And so I just think what for me is what I was and will always be different, I think, than a lot of the people who came up in journalism because I always cared about the issues first. Um, like, like, you know, you and I were talking about Iraq. Like, I really did care about Iraq. Mm-hmm. I re- actually cared about Afghanistan. And I care uh, deeply about, like, what happens in our economy um, to people who don't have a voice, like, in Washington who have been forgotten for a really long time. And one of the things I appreciated most about Trump is that he was just, like, a living symbol of mm-hmm. just, like, a middle finger to these people being like, no. Like, like for many people, they voted for him. Because they said, I exist. Like, you need to see me. You have to see me and my way of life. Like, I am American too. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was important. And it's something that nobody here still will treat with compassion. And it really bothers me because, and look, also maybe this happens because I'm from Texas. I grew up with many people who uh, are would not necessarily fit in with mainstream culture. And mm-hmm. I think that's fine. And I, I think people should be able to live generally the way they want to live. And there's a deep narcissism here within the Northeastern and San Francisco like elite amongst people who really believe they know better right. than others. And they want you to live a certain way and talk a certain way and indoctrinate your kids a certain way. And I just, I just think it's so deeply wrong. And and so that's kind of what I wanted to exit out of. And so I just wanted to, I just wanted to be able to like say what I really think, because here's the truth. Like half the people in DC know this is all bullshit, but they're all, and <laughs> no. they'll tell you that. They yeah. will tell you that yeah. over a drink. They'll be like, oh, yeah. fuck him or fuck yeah. that. And people at CNN are like, screw Jim Acosta. <laughs> you know, yeah. after they've had like a couple drinks, <laughs> yeah. ask them to say it out loud. They'll never say it ever. Right. Um, and I wanted to just have a place where I could be like, actually, like Scrooge and McCoss. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 Well, that, that was, that's all it was. When, when you started this, when you, when you, so the, 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 the transition we'll say, so yeah. did you guys build the entire channel from, is this like, yeah. the, the so entire the hill, thing is the hill. Yeah. That's yeah the hill thing. YouTube channel at that time, it was moribund and only had 6,000 subs. And got right it. now I think it's got like 1.2 million, something right. like that. So it effectively was built entirely by us. Wow. That, I yeah. mean, that's one, you're, you're stepping off into the abyss, right? You're kind of like making your yeah, own you mark. Know. You're sticking right. off. You don't know, uh, which I can I can honestly say that's that's uh, that's commendable too. How does that break down? So I, I've mm-hmm. looked at the channel itself, and uh, and this <laughs> this is going to sound like such a stupid uh, question, but how do you break the information down on the hill? So when you guys look at your buckets of information as far as your publishing schedule, how are you mm-hmm. determining what's news and what isn't, uh, and who does what? How many people are over there? Uh, so it's a team. I'm not actually sure entirely how, so we have like, I mean, I'll just count it off. So Crystal and I, obviously, Mm -hmm. and then we have two guys who are in this, who operate the camera and a teleprompter and then a director and then two production staff who help with like booking and all of that. Right. And then a video editor. So I'm not sure how many people that is, but like, that's sure. Generally what it is. But look, I mean, honestly, Crystal and I basically do everything. Like we, do. we we write all of our stuff. We book 
all of the guests, like maybe not physically, like, yeah. you know, arranging schedule, like being like, come on at 2.35 mm-hmm. PM, but we're like this guest, this guest, right. that guest, we pick all the topics. We write each of our radars every single day. And like, it's a lot of work. You know? yeah, like, that, I think people is. don't realize that it's a lot of work. Like are you picking all these topics and making sure what people want to know, you know, you have to balance of like, this is something I think is really important. Right. Um, and tr- figuring out a way to convey that to people because I like to meet people where they are. I don't mm-hmm. want to talk down to people. Like I, I like to meet people where they are. And I try really hard because I realize how caught up in your own bullshit this DC can be mm-hmm. to try and distill and dumb down things. For example, like when you were talking about SOFA, my instinct, I was like, oh, we need to explain what that is. Status of oh, right. so forces yeah. agreement. Right. Like I got to make sure that, cause I know like, you know, I are talking, I know what this mm-hmm. sofa is and you do too. People can get very caught up in that stuff. And I try to look out for my audience who mm-hmm. are going about their lives. What I always tell them is I'm like, I don't blame you. You don't need to know this. Like it's right. my job. Like I'll take it and I'll explain it to you because what one of the great tricks that the expertise class has figured out is if you speak in enough jargon and if you make things super, uh, super hard to understand that you can get away with a lot. Right. Right. And if you make things very inaccessible, then you don't start to become accountable to the people because Mm -hmm. people will tune out. And so I kind of view myself as an interlocutor between that. So shifting back to politics, which is, I I had this question uh, and then I, I I bounced onto my, onto your YouTube uh, channel, Mm -hmm. but the, the Trump administration, do you think they got a, uh, and I already, I already have my opinion, but do you think that they got a fair shake uh, from from the beginning of the administration all the way through? And if and then obviously I'll have another question to follow that up. Uh, if not, like why? Meaning from the media sure. and things like that. So what what went wrong from the jump and what went right? Do you think? Yeah, I, I want to be careful about how I answer this. So obviously sure. the answer is no. Uh, right. No. Any anti-establishment administration, left or right, and there hasn't been an anti-establishment left one that has come in yet, but it Mm -hmm. would face the same barriers that Trump did. That being said, this is kind of like what I said about Iraq, which is Iraq was probably always going to go bad. Like, yes, they're always going to be biased against you. I mean, he he staffed it terribly. He did not pick people who agreed with him whatsoever. Mm -hmm. He picked many people who actively actually disagreed with his agenda. Many Mm -hmm. of his problems were self-inflicted. And at the end of the day, like Trump didn't actually just care that much about getting stuff done. Um, Mm -hmm. And I know that can be hard for people who supported him to hear. I can tell you this. I interviewed Trump four times. I spent a total of two hours or so with him in the Oval Office. He's an extraordinarily impulsive and dynamic man, but he's not really that interested in governance. Mm -hmm. And the way I describe DC, and if you want to be a great president, this is what you have to do which is that DC, if you do not have a hyper-intentional view about how to fix something, Mm -hmm. then the default will become your policy. So for example, if you don't have a hyper-intentional view about how we should conduct our policy towards Belarus, for example, right? Something nobody thinks about. Then whatever the last three administrations will have done, that will be your policy. Got it. So if you want to change something, you got to know I'm the president of the United States. I don't have time to worry about fucking Belarus. And neither does my secretary of state. So I got to pick a guy who's a secretary of state. Who's going to pick a guy? Who's going to pick a guy? Who knows what I, he's going to intuit what I want done about Belarus. That's how you be a great president. You have to pick 
the right people. Um, very few presidents have ever understood this. Reagan was one, FDR was one, LBJ was one, and Lincoln. Those people understood governments and they understood how to convey their will through the actions of their subordinates who would pick better subordinates. Trump didn't do any of that. And he actually did the opposite, picked people like H.R. McMaster, Gary Cohn, Larry Kudlow, many of others who dramatically undermined his agenda in favor of their own and in favor of, frankly, the business interests that they'd been intermingled within for a long time. And it really destroyed his administration um, from something that could have been transformative. And it basically happened on day one with Jared Kushner. And, and there, there's a lot that, that goes right. into that. But this is a way I think that people need to think about politics, which, look, if you're on the right, you will never get a fair shake from the media. And right. I tell people that all the time. That's just how it is. It's mm -hmm. not going to change. Bitching about it, not going to fix anything. So what you have to do is come in with the assumption of you're not going to get a fair shake and pick the right people and do the best possible work you can, knowing that you will be unfairly smeared mm -hmm. and that the deep state, you know, whoever will push back against you. It's your job to figure out how to overcome that. Again, I didn't say it was fair, but like, right. that's life, you know? Well, and that, and that's interesting because you touched on a few different things, which is uh, the deep state, right? Mm -hmm. Like a lot of people have asked me this and, and I've talked about the deep state. You've talked about <laughs> it. So define deep state for everybody because I think it's, yeah. you have an interesting definition of this. The deep state to me are people who work within the government, largely within the civil service, mm -hmm. who have an ideological commitment to the way that American policy should go. So the perfect example I always use is Alexander Vindman. He was the uh, lieutenant colonel who was the whistleblower oh, yeah. during the Ukraine mm -hmm. scandal. Right. And I'm not going after him. This isn't a partisan thing. Sure. Like, this is actually what, what galled me is when he was testifying before Congress, what he said was the reason that he whistle blew on Trump uh, during the Ukraine phone call was the president departed from the policy of the United States. Right. And that really bothered me because I said, no offense, but who the fuck are you? Like, <laughs> right. like the president of the United <laughs> right. States makes American foreign policy. Yeah. He was duly elected by the yeah. American people. And if he wants to do something with Ukraine, that's on him. And it's not on you to say this is the policy of the United States. The policy is whatever the president says it is. Mm -hmm. And that was just a very good window into the mindset of people in the State Department, in the CIA, in the DOD, who, if you are to, Afghanistan's a perfect example. It is the policy of the United States that America should be committed to uh, women's rights empowerment in Afghanistan. Sure. Really? When? Did we vote on it? And what yeah. if I disagree and I'm the president? Am I differing from the, from the policy? Or are you simply enacting something which you've been committed to in the past? So that is what I think a good example of deep state behavior mm -hmm. looks like in its most extreme, which is, here are a set of principles that we adhere to regardless of who is democratically elected. And mm. that's why it's very dangerous. Well, it's interesting because it seems almost a battle of wills between the government and bureaucrats and their elected yeah. officials ultimately, right? So it's, yes. I actually brought this out. Uh, so this is, uh, have, you, have you ever oh, seen this before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I know right. the book. Yeah, Crystal's actually right. reading it right now. I see yeah, really? It's a great book. Yeah, oh, well, literally. That. Yeah. I thought I was doing something cool, but <laughs> uh, no, I... And, so going through this and reading about the Dulles brothers and thinking about the administrations that ultimately the brothers served, well, uh, 
kind of you could kind of reverse that depending on how you uh, you kind of define that. But mm-hmm. the deep state's kind of always been around in modern history, right? Always. And there's always been yes. this push pull and this battle between the we'll call it the new executive office or the the new administration, uh, and then the former bureaucrats that might have a lot of different power, right? That and depending on how they're applying power and where, whether it's domestically or internationally, there's a there's a, this really complex uh, power scale that I don't think people respect enough. I really don't think that they they Correct. respect because, uh, and I was talking to, um, and this is not me name dropping. I was talking to Dan Crenshaw about this, which was mm-hmm. uh, Dan it gets frustrated with just general voters because at, at times he's saying, no, people need to understand this is really complex that we have to kind of balance not only our policy objectives, what we believe, what our constituents want against who actually yields power, right? So who yields power against future endeavors, thinking about strategically, this is super fucking complex. You can't just distill it and say, this is what you want. It's not that easy. Uh, And I think that nuance uh, is, is one of the things I wanted you to weigh in on. Do you think that it's gotten better? Do you think that it's gotten worse? Do you think it's always kind of been consistently underneath the government kind of operating like, like, uh, like, like a piece of software <laughs> ultimately? Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Deep states have always existed and they'll exist right. in any centralized bureaucracy. You can look at Europe and Turkey. Um, you can look at the evolution of modern administrative states, the Imperial Germany. Imperial Germany is a good example. Mm-hmm. Or even in the United Kingdom, they have an entire joke over there about like, yes, minister, because the civil rights, the civil, uh, the civil uh, government are the ones who are like, we run the government, you people cycle in and out. You don't know what you're talking about. So this isn't unique just to the American system. Um, All of that being said, in terms of why we are at, I think, a crisis point is because uh, we have a lack of democracy, small d democracy Mm. in the minds of these people. This is something I referenced a little bit earlier, which is that there is no small d democratic check on the mindset of the elites in America, which is that elites in America become so dramatically disconnected and ideologically committed to certain worldviews on foreign wars abroad, on free trade, on gender ideology, on critical race theory, a lot of different things, which are dramatically out of step with the average American citizen. And they don't care. And I think Mm. that this is the difference, which is that if you were to look back on the deep states of old, they were, didn't have as much of pushback because, frankly, they had more democratic legitimacy. Like, mm. what happened is that I would say mm. around 1980, I want to say, is where this all really accelerated with the total commitment to neoconservative foreign policy and mm. neoliberal trade policy, which accelerated in the 1990s in the 2000s, where there was a total bifurcation in the American economy and within the class system, really. And now it has just gotten to a point where the reason people want simple solutions is because they're not buying your nuance anymore. Like, they don't want to hear it. They're like, I've heard it's too complicated for 20 years. I want you to get out of Afghanistan. Or like, I've heard four presidents in a row tell me they're going to get me funding for a job training program. And I'm still stuck here after my job got shipped to Mexico or got shipped to China. And I was promised X, Y, or Z, and it's not here. So what's going on? I think that the concentration of wealth and power in particular amongst 
a select group of the top 25 to 40% of the population. And the deepening cultural divide is largely what the problem is, which is that they just have no conception of how somebody could disagree with them. And worse, now in particular, they have contempt. They have Mm -hmm. absolute contempt for people who would disagree, who are their own citizens. They really don't look at them as their own citizens. I think that's the biggest problem that we have right now. Do you think that yields to a possibility for a third party or do you think that's a pipe dream? People ask me that all the time. I just don't mm-hmm. see it. I mean, look, right. we have very ossified political institutions, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that things can't get better. Trump changed right. the Republican Party completely, took it over. Right. Who the hell was he? But yeah. he can't, that's a, that's actually an inspiring story if you think mm-hmm. about it. Because this like random guy just came in <laughs> and destroyed the entire <laughs> Republican establishment and he won the election. Like, dude, yeah. he, the first time I met Trump, I was like, Yo, I was like, this is the dude from the fucking apprentice. <laughs> like, I was like, he's the president. Right. Like he's in the oval office. It's a good thing. I actually think so. It's it's important. And so look, the Democratic Party has dramatically changed. Look, they were delivered the White House on the back of upper middle class white liberals. Right. That hasn't happened in a long time. Those people yeah. used to be Republicans. Mm-hmm. Um, a bunch of working class Latinos and whites are the ones who put Trump in the White House, or gave him 75 million votes in 2020. Those people all used to vote Democrat. Ohio was a battleground state. Now right. it's R plus eight. So America changes. Like that, well, just because just because the third party's not happening doesn't mean that you can't see a total takeover or change within the political parties. Well, I, and I've talked a lot about this as, as far as like my wife and I, because I, I look at kind of the 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 conversation around race in America. And I think about it from the context of just my personal, you know, uh, mm-hmm. sphere that I live in. And I, I see this, this, uh, this elevated conversation about race and I see it more about class than I do about race. I think this yes. is more a, a conversation about your economic status, not about what your skin color is. Because I grew up in a very rural portion of, of Idaho uh, uh, with Northern Idaho being like, you know, 99% Caucasian, yeah. but right. I have more in common with a person that grew grew up below the poverty line in Georgia of uh, an African American descent than I do than a person that grew grew up above my economic circumstance in Seattle, Washington. Way more exactly. Actually. Exactly. Yes. And I think this uh the I the, the the conspiracy side of my mind obviously goes to the point of people want uh, the working class Americans to be bifurcated. They want us to be separate. They don't want us to unify around uh, a certain message because we might realize that the, the, the gig is up, right? I listen and watch uh, and, and respect Cornell West more <laughs> than <laughs> I would say a lot of, you know, I would say even alt-right guys that are on pundits because I can hear the passion and the commitment of, about what he's doing for, we'll call it, the African-American community, but really he's talking about a class issue. That's why I think exactly. Bernie Sanders has a lot of resonance with a lot of different people from, you know, we'll call it the the um, nonpartisan sides. And Trump, for instance, when we look back even on Trump, we say, how did he get so much of, we'll call it the center vote? And I think it's because you had a ton of people and obviously you know way more about this, but mm-hmm. I just want to get your take on, is this, is this uh, conversation that is so, uh, I would say, uh, incendiary around race, is it more about economics or do you think it is about race? Do you think we really have a racism problem in America more than we do about 
a class elitism section that is making it about race. I don't know. Well, here's some here's an interesting thing that media will never tell you. We actually had the least racialized election of all time in 2020. As in, people did not vote according to their race mm-hmm. than according to their class for the first time in modern American history. So why um, is that? And we should right. think very deeply and hard about that. Is mm-hmm. racism a problem in America? Yes, absolutely. Um, is it as much of a problem as class in America? I don't know. That's for mm-hmm. all of us to decide. But right. what I think the biggest problem we have is we have an elite class, which benefits a lot from talking and gaslighting people right. into thinking that race is the biggest problem we have in America. And this is why people thought I was crazy when I was freaking out about the 1619 Project yeah. um, at the New York Times. I saw it coming from a mile away. I knew exactly what this became a uh, guaranteed curriculum. It was paired up with the Pulitzer Prize yeah. and they are now teaching it in schools. And I just thought, look, I my parents are immigrants to this country. And I think it is an incredible thing that I can come here and feel deep cultural resonance with people like Ulysses S. Grant or William Sherman Mm. or LBJ or others, because I recognize in them the want and the fight for universal value or Lincoln or FDR or others. Um, And I can recognize the pursuit of that within myself for what I want for my country. Mm. That's so deeply unique. And this is what people want to focus on because it's a very convenient, I think, tool for preserving the power of a lot of people who are in the new American elite. And they don't, it's like you said, I think they don't want people to know that the jig is up, which is that, hey, like, why is Shell Gas very comfortable sponsoring events with the Nicole Hannah-Jones' 1619 Project? They know it is not a threat to their economic livelihood. And the more people think that the chief dividing line that we have in America today is race and it's not class, then that actually protects a lot of people at the highest echelons of power. I think there's a reason that Amazon puts Black Lives Matter all over its stuff. And same with Nike and same with the richest and most powerful people in this country. And it's because they know that it's not a threat to them. And if it was, then they would be fighting it just as hard as Amazon is fighting their union drive like right now. Right. I just, yeah, you know, like the Amazon, I mean, the CEO of Amazon of consumer retail is declaring open war on right. Twitter and he's got like, you know, his pronouns or whatever in his bio. <laughs> sure. And I'm like, I think that tells you everything you need to know about where power really resides, what narratives are convenient, what are not. Um, and I think we have a lot more in common. You said this at the top with, with Iraq. I mean, what do Iraqis want? They want the same thing, right? I think most Americans generally want the same thing. Or is there a portion of our populace which is racist? Yeah, yeah. there is. Um, is there a portion of our populace which just wants to be left alone? Yeah, and I don't mm-hmm. think there's anything wrong with that. And that's actually, I think, I think the biggest problem that we have, which is that, look, it, prosperous countries don't have racism problems for a reason, mm-hmm. because like these things are all interconnected. I'm really glad what you said at the top too, because uh, I mean, what you said about having more in common with somebody who's working class in Georgia. Um, Friend of mine, JD Vance, he once said this, and I thought it was really poignant, which is that most people who are in the ruling class in America would rather hang out with like a Parisian of their same socioeconomic status. 
because they would have more in common with that person Correct. than they would a coal miner in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. And that is a story deeply embedded in class. And look, I'm, you know, I'm one of those, my parents are professors. Like I, right. I know who I am. I, I know where I come from. Like I, like, <laughs> I've been, I've lived here for 10 years and all that. But the important point is to have people who have my background be cognizant of what, well, hold on a second. There are a lot of people in this country who think differently. That's what we have missing today. Well, and it's interesting. I think, uh, you know, I, I want to go back to, I think, Trump and what he's done with the GOP. So mm-hmm. what does this look like as far as what does the GOP look like going forward with Trump, without Trump? Uh, you know, obviously the, it's changed completely from, we'll call it five years ago, right? That we'll call it the pre-Trump GOP and then now sure. Trump GOP. What does the party look like going forward? Uh, meaning how what did it look like five years ago? What does it look like today? And then what does it look like going forward is for who's participating in the, in the Republican party? Yeah. The Republican party right now is a fascinating story and what it is. And Trump really did change everything, which is that it was a collection of increasingly downwardly mobile. And I don't mean this in a derogatory term. I'm talking economically Mm -hmm. downwardly mobile people in rural parts of the country and people who are also culturally downwardly mobile. So this is very important to understand. The chief dividing line in America today is culture. And if you really want to know where that comes down to, it's this, especially if you're white. Do you have a four-year college degree or not? If you Mm -hmm. don't, you're dramatically more likely to support Trump, the Republican Party, adhere to values which are much more traditional and not buy into many of the things that you see in our media and our commanding heights of our economy. Right. Then if you do, then you are somebody who largely, again, this is on the law of averages, probably voted for Joe Biden. You have a very different view of what America should look like, of what our values mean, of cultural progressivism in particular, and more. And so the Republican Party doesn't have an identity around policy because they don't really stand for anything in policy. What Trump really was, was a cultural bulwark against left-wing liberalism. Mm -hmm. And it, that's what the thing is that means all things to all people. Mm-hmm. For Cubans in Miami, it was against AOC socialism. For uh, many working class whites, it was against trade and mass immigration from mm-hmm. Central America. For millions of suburban people who were not college educated, it was against defund the police. So that's why he was so successful. Trump was really not ideological, like economically didn't really stand for anything. Um, But what he served as was a way for 75 million people to say, no, I've had enough. And this is the problem that liberals have, which is that they can stand for many economic policies all they want, but culturally they are so dramatically out of step with so much of our population that they are never going to win some of these votes back. And again, look, this is a marginal story. So even mm-hmm. if this changes 2%, that's actually a shit ton of people. It can you know, <laughs> right. change the entire election. Right. And so I do think the Republican Party has a big problem because what I think is that if you pair that cultural bulwark with a forward-thinking economic agenda, you could win not just big, but huge. Like you could mm-hmm. win major populations. But right now, much of the party infrastructure is just sold out to big business and to a very old way um, of thinking and ideology, unfortunately. And Evan, I'm sorry, man. I got to go. Like, I'm sorry too, man. I really appreciate your time. Uh, Where can Um, everybody find you? 
uh, on Twitter at Esager, Instagram, same thing, YouTube, The Hill. Uh, I also host a podcast called The Realignment. Uh, I talk about this stuff every day, all the time. All the time. Yeah. yeah. So thank you so much, Sagar. I really appreciate all your time, man. Keep doing what you're doing. Uh, thank you again. Go uh, you. check out Sagar and Crystal on YouTube. Check them out on Twitter. Follow him, listen to him. He's an awesome guy. Appreciate it. Thank you, Evan. And keep yeah. making great coffee, man. I've been drinking Thanks, for a man. long time. See you later. Dude, I appreciate it. Bye.